Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, volcanoes. It's STEM for those of us whose love for geology has no faults. <laughs> Mine has some faults. Because I don't know nothing. <laughs> What have you been up to lately? I just found out something so cool. <laughs> what, what, what? I just, uh, and I bet everyone did this when they were a kid and I just did not know about it. Um, but I read it in a historical sense. And then I was like, I have to do that, um, which is you can make invisible ink <gasps> uh, with lemon juice and applying a heat source. What? Yeah. And this was actually used to pass like information um, during like the antebellum era. Wow. Okay. So explain to me how this works, please. So you take uh, lemon juice, right? And you can Uh take an instrument like a cotton swab or like, you know, like a little wood, something that it will absorb the lemon juice, but allow it to transfer onto some paper. Okay. And then you can write whatever you want in the lemon juice, fold it up. There will be like a little bit of, you know, crinkling because, you know, the liquid from the lemon juice has hit the paper. But overall, once it dries, you can't see what the letters that you've written But when you apply a heat source, like, you know, holding it up to a match or, you know, drying it with a hairdryer or holding it near a stove, or in my case, because I'm in L.A., being outside at any point in July, um, the invisible ink will show up and you'll be able to see the message. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's me figuring out things that eight-year-olds already knew. (laughs) I'd never heard of this, so. Okay, good. News to me. (laughs) What about you? Mine is much more simple. I looked out the window last night and the moon looked enormous. And I was like, what is going on? And it looked like reddish pink. And I looked it up and I realized it was a strawberry supermoon last night. It will date this recording that (laughs) it was June 24th when I looked out the window and saw an enormous moon. Whoa, I got to look up what the strawberry supermoon looks like. Yeah. I didn't look at the moon. Wow. Oh, man. Oh, it's the last supermoon of 2021. What was I doing? I don't know, but it was incredible. I feel like I missed so many of these events with like meteor showers or supermoons or, you know, anything that's going on. But I happened to look out the window and, and get a glance of it. I have been trying to get my, okay, hold on. Here's the thing that's actually happened. I have been trying to get my friends to get up to go watch a meteor shower with me. <laughs> but, what time? Well, you know, it depends on the meteor shower, but some it depends on when, you know, the peak is. It mm-hmm. usually is, you know, after like 10 p.m. So I'm usually like, does anybody want to get up around 2 and watch a meteor shower with me? And no one ever does. I'll <laughs> do I'm, it. Yay. Okay. I just don't <laughs> want to go by myself. I know that sounds silly, but I just no, don't want to go by myself. No, it doesn't sound silly. I'll go with you. Yay. Okay. I'll let you know what the next one is. So cool. Okay. Well, um, I have a fun fact from my friend Robin Tunney. She played Sarah in the movie The Craft. Iconic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, she's also starred on such shows as The Mentalist and Prison Break. She's a great actress, and she sent us an excellent STEM fact. This is Robin Tunney, and my STEM fact is that raindrops actually aren't tear-shaped. They're shaped like hamburger buns. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to start laughing, but it's really funny. 
funny to me. <laughs> I know. It's the way she says it, too. Just tiny hamburgers falling on your head. Hamburger buns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's the little things in life sometimes. <laughs> okay. So we're going to be talking a lot about natural phenomena in this episode. For story time, we'll be joined by Zassi Bates. You may have seen her in the series Atlanta or the film Joker. She's going to help share the story of a severe weather researcher people called Mr. Tornado. But first, we're talking to volcanologist Kayla Iancovino. She is particularly interested in the inner workings of volcanic systems. There's a whole process surrounding volcanoes, how they form and how they shape the landscape around them, which we talk about during the interview. Right. She's studied volcanoes around the world and on other planets. She's even spent time on an active volcano in Antarctica. Okay, now let's get to our interview with Kayla Iancovino. Well, I was reading that um, you had done some work on the southernmost active volcano on on the Earth, mm-hmm. uh, Mount Erebus in Antarctica. Can you tell us what that was like? Yeah, that was like a dream. Um, so this is where I did my my PhD dissertation work. Um, and this volcano is really unique. It's one of the only volcanoes in the world to host a permanently active lava lake in the crater. So mm-hmm. I think it's what most people think all volcanoes look like. Like you go to the top. You're at the rim of the volcano and you look down and there's, you can see that the top of the magma chamber, you see this pool of lava inside. And that's actually really rare. Most volcanoes are just like cobbles at the top with like some uh, gases coming out of them. And they're not as exciting to look at, but this one um, has this huge lava lake inside. And so you can go and stand on the rim of this volcano that's covered in ice and you're surrounded by the Ross Sea on one side of you that's partially frozen, and then you look towards the continent of Antarctica on the other side, and it's just all ice as far as you can see. And then you're staring down into this thing that's, you know, over a thousand degrees Celsius. So that's over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, just like churning around. And there are eruptions there periodically. They're usually pretty small. And so they're not something you're typically worried about. But what happens when Erebus erupts is every volcano kind of has its own style. And Erebus is, is, it throws out what are called volcanic bombs. <laughs> <laughs> and these are like chunks of magma that get thrown up and then they kind of solidify in the air and as they're falling back down. And usually at Erebus, the, the stuff just kind of comes straight up and then falls straight back down and back into the lava lake. Other times, those projectiles can get kicked out of the crater and they can hit things and that's bad. They can be huge. They can be like the size of a truck, you know, or like a small shed or something like that, or or bigger probably. So what they told us to do when we were there, like, okay, so if the volcano erupts, stop whatever you're doing, look at the volcano, so you can see what's going on, spread out from people around you so you don't run into each other. And then if there's a bomb coming towards you, it was like supposed to like look up and watch it as it's coming towards you, and then like wait, and then just step out of the way and let it (laughs) fall. That's all. I mean, can't stop it. And they said, don't turn around yeah. and run away because then you don't see where it's going. <gasps> and you might be running right into his path, you know. How do you not turn and run? Right? I mean, oh. I don't know what I would have actually. So I, I was there during an eruption. It wasn't a bomb coming towards me like this, which was, I don't know. I, maybe I would have just tucked tail and run. I don't know. <gasps> but my, my friend and I were, were walking around the crater just like for a stroll. And... We kind of were right near the lip of the volcano, so you can't quite see over it. We were down maybe 10 feet or so. And we're walking and just chatting, and we hear this, like, guttural boom. We we both looked at each other, and within, it felt like a long time, but within the span of, I'm sure, less than a second, we kind of locked eyes and both had this look of, like, what was that? And then this look of realization, like, oh, my God, we're on a volcano. I know exactly what that is. And we couldn't see over the top, right? So we, we ran to the top. We're, like I said, like 10 feet away from the, the rim. So we ran to the top, and I got there just in time to see those bombs, and they were bright orange, coming straight up. And then you could see them cooling, like turning black in the air, and they came straight up and then turned around and then like it looked like it was in slow motion and then like fell gently back down into the crater. 
And it was oh like, that's probably the coolest thing I've ever seen. When she's talking about those magma bombs, <laughs> um, not to be completely like sort of like ridiculous about this, but my first thought, I was like, this is Super Mario Odyssey. Yes! This is... <laughs> This is that, like, cooking level with the bird in Super Mario Odyssey is what this is. Also, could I keep my cool if a lava bomb was coming at me and not turn around and run? What what would I do is what I kept thinking. She's like, can't turn around. You can't run away from it. Make sure you're spread out from other people. What What do you think you would do in that moment? I saw a scary cloud once and ran. Um but I am trying to be braver, so mm-hmm. I'm going to say that with enough information, I could do exactly what Kayla did, which is stand, move out of the way, and not panic. That's what I'm going to say. Yes. Yes. I believe in us. Thank we can you. do it. Yay. <laughs> Let's not go, though. I'm not trying to put myself in that situation, shit, but I'm going to say that I could do it. <laughs> you have two titles, volcanologist and experimental petrologist. How would you define each? So a volcanologist in the classical sense is, you know, someone who studies volcanoes. I use both titles because within the field, within, within, among researchers, a volcanologist, true volcanologist is someone who's mostly doing fieldwork, um, understanding like volcanic deposits, mapping them, you know, doing a lot of structural work about the actual deposits themselves. And I'm more on like the geochemistry side of volcanology. And we call that petrology. And that's nothing to do with petroleum. People ask me that a lot, especially living in Houston. But it is from the word Greek word petra, which is the Greek word for rock. So petrology in particular is the study of the formation of rocks, how they came to be, how they arrived at the formation they're at now. Maybe to start off, we'll we'll do some basics about volcanoes. Sure. Um, so... How over the history of time, and this is a big question, how have volcanoes altered the landscape of Earth? Basics. Yeah, basics, basic stuff. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that is a huge question. And the answer is in so many ways. Um, Volcanism is more than just the volcano that you see at the top, at the surface. That surface edifice, the volcano itself, is really just the surface expression of a ton of processes that are going on really, really deep within the Earth. So it's deep within the earth that's actually the driving force where all the energy is coming from. And this is really important for earth. You know, if you look at earth and you look at all the other planets in our solar system, the first thing you probably notice is earth is the only one that has life. And it's Mm -hmm. the only one that has a thick, but not too thick, an oxygen-rich atmosphere. And this might be due to the process of volcanism. So one thing we have on earth that we don't have on other planets is plate tectonics. So of course, that's the process by which the crust of the earth is moving around, sliding around, um, and sometimes they run into each other. And when that happens, oftentimes the more dense plate gets shoved below the less dense plate. And when that happens, that's how we get the majority of surface volcanism on the earth. So the Pacific Ring of Fire is this ring-shaped thing around the Pacific Ocean, and it includes um, the Cascades in the United States, um, the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, Japan, Um, all the way down through like the Philippines and then all the way back up through Chile. And those are all volcanoes that are created by this process of two plates colliding. It's called subduction. So when this plate slides underneath the other, it gets shoved down into the depths of the earth called the earth's mantle, where it heats up, it starts to kind of release all the material. It's it's bringing all this stuff, all of this, this mass, all these chemical elements into the deep part of the earth. That kind of gets stirred up down there. It gets heated up, and then all that kind of churns and boils and coalesces together, and that creates the impetus that you need to then begin that eruption, which is creating a pocket of magma in the earth, and then it gets driven by its own buoyancy towards the surface, and you get a chain of volcanoes. So one of the things that is put out by a volcano is oxygen. Mm. Um, it's It's in small quantities compared to other elements that are in there. But oxygen and other things we need for life, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, carbon, these are coming out the tops of volcanoes. And then through geologic processes, they kind of get locked up again in the rocks. They turn into limestone or shale or things that settle at the bottom of the ocean. When you have plate tectonics, that material can get recycled. It gets shoved back into the deep earth, heated up, and ejected back again. So 
on other planets where we don't have plate tectonics, a lot of these, like Mars, had a huge volcanic history in its past. The biggest volcano in the solar system is on Mars. It's about the size of the state of Arizona, and its caldera is larger than that of Yellowstone's. But wow. that was in the first, like, one-fourth of its history, and then it stopped. Um, and we think probably it's because you don't have this recycling process. You kind of expel all, the, all of your stuff that gets locked up in like, hmm. sedimentary rocks, and then the process kind of ends. It peters out. So that... So volcanism, even though you just think of it as a little volcano on the top, is that whole big process is one of the reasons that probably that humans exist, uh, that life exists at all on planet Earth. Wow. So just so I make sure I'm understanding this correctly, when you said that, the first thing I thought about, and it's not the same thing, but I thought about the water cycle, for example, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, rain eventually gets made into lakes, then it, uh, you know, then it is evaporated. And then, you know, we get that kind of cycle. It sounds kind of like it's similar to that. Is that true? Yeah, it's a very good analogy. And in fact, um, that's like the surface water cycle. But we also talk about the water cycle or the hydrogen cycle. The cycling of any element cycling is like in vogue right now um, (laughs) for for researchers in my field. Um, But yeah, it's the same process, but you include the solid earth in that. So instead of just doing everything at the surface, you know, water is going along for that ride as well. In fact, here's something that I think is really cool. So this subduction process, right? Like if you think about the Cascades on the Western coast of the United States, you have the the Pacific Ocean plate is the thing, is the plate that's going into the mantle and it's bringing all this material down and it brings down water with it. And it brings ah. down water that it got. I mean, w- w- you know, it's it started out as on the seafloor. So huh. it's surrounded by ocean water. Ocean water and, uh, you know, sodium chloride, you know, so there's salt in there. There's all kinds of boron. There's all kinds of stuff in there. And those elements, along with the water, have the signature. If, it, if I take some ocean water and I measure it in the lab, I'm pretty sure I know pretty close what exact elements are going to be in there. It's, it's a, there's a standard, a chemical standard for that. Hmm. And it turns out that the products that are erupted out of the tops of volcanoes, so the sort of end of this part of the cycle... You can measure like a piece of volcanic glass that's come out of a volcano in the Cascades. And in it, you can see the signature. So the same kind of ratios of water, chlorine, sodium, boron. So we call these things tracer elements. You can actually see seawater in volcanic rocks. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It blows my mind. I had never thought of volcanic rocks as being kind of like you know, native to the areas that they come from. You know what I mean? That's very cool. Mm -hmm. Huh. Okay. Can I ask another follow-up question about um, volcanoes on other planets? Please. Absolutely not on our questions, but I just had to ask. (laughs) So what is it? (laughs) Because like Io has an active volcano, right? Mm -hmm. So what is it about those volcanoes that is not putting as much oxygen out? That's a great question. Um, Io is a special case for sure. It has a ton of volcanoes and... It is a much smaller body. Obviously, it's a moon of a planet. And so it's um, the reason that it's uh, erupting all the time is not due to plate tectonics. It's due to gravitational forces. So mm. it's actually, mm. it's, it's the closest uh, moon to Ju- the planet Jupiter, which is like unfathomably massive and just freaky environments, like ton of radiation. <laughs> I, I, I'm terrified of Jupiter. I don't want to go anywhere near it. <laughs> <laughs> like legit, it's like the scariest thing to me. But so I, here's Io, little tiny Io, like next to this massive, almost star-sized thing, and then mm. to the out to the other side of it are all the other moons. And so there's this like these tidal forces, just like the moon have has tidal forces on the uh, the oceans on Earth. Jupiter and the other moons have are tidally flexing the rock on the on the moon Io, oh. and that fr- the friction from that motion heats the rocks enough to melt it to cause them to erupt. Um, so it's a completely different process. It's a much smaller body. So the original composition of uh, like the, the bulk composition of the whole planet is going to be quite different from, uh, or the whole moon rather is going to be quite different from like a planet sized body like Mars or the earth. So. Okay. Wow. Wow. Do we have non tectonic volcanoes on earth? Well, yes, we have what are called hotspot volcanoes. So that's like a Hawaii. So Hawaii is like right in the middle of a tectonic plate. So like the Pacific Ocean is one 
giant plate, basically. And sometimes we get these hot spots, which are, that's all kind of, we know about how they form. They're actually kind of mysterious. We think that there's, for some reason, some um, formation of heat really, really deep in the earth, like all the way at the boundary between the mantle and the core. So like very, very deep within the earth, you know, hundreds of miles down. Um, and for some reason that forms as like a hot spot where all this material kind of coalesces and then it shoots straight up in what's called a plume. Um, then that reaches the surface and just punches through the plate. Punching through the plate. <laughs> that does sound like uh, an album name. I mean, I, I'm going to watch our producer Tamika sent us a video of a hotspot volcano and I'm really curious to watch it. Yes. Ugh. Ugh. I, uh, okay, so it's just for people who can't see it. It's a video of magma just absolutely just pouring out of it. And I was groaning because there was a house that was just so, there was, there was a house on fire and palm trees on fire. It's in Hawaii. It's just, ooh. It's, it's, it's really wild to think about these natural phenomena just existing in our world. I feel like I was not concerned enough. You know, mm-hmm. like, I think I need to start Volcano Watch 2021. It's really incredible, but it's also very scary to look at. Absolutely. I, after this interview, I, every person I saw, I was like, volcanoes. Why yeah. are we not talking about volcanoes more? I mean, it, I, 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 I was too. And everybody was like, because we're in New York. What are you yeah. talking about? Um, <laughs> So what are the conditions required for a volcano to form? You know, I don't think there's one set of rules because, like, for example, in the case of a hotspot, we can't really predict. We don't have a good fundamental understanding of why hotspots form. We, we, we try to image them and it's hard to, to see. The deeper you go in the earth, the harder it is to access, the harder it is to measure because it's, you know, it's just so far away. And there's so much rock between you and the thing you're trying to measure that. We know as you go down in the earth, we know like less and less about what's happening. Mm-hmm. With tectonics, it's um, there are some pretty key ingredients there. It's you know you need two plates moving apart from each other, and that causes the the hot material that is underneath the plates to kind of well up and form volcanoes. Or you need two plates crashing into each other, um, one to go beneath the other, and then have that material melt and come back to the surface. But it's it's interesting because I remember asking a similar question when I was in my undergrad starting my research career. I was like, so, you know, where, where is a volcano going to form? Like, how can you predict where a volcano is mm. going to form? Like, what has to be there first? Right. And it turns out, like, n- nothing. So there's this one volcano in Mexico, and it's called Paracutine. And it's really fascinating because it formed, like, you know, within human history. And wow. it formed in the Oof. middle of a cornfield, like someone's cornfield. As flat as you can get, you know, not in a mountain range. All of a sudden, magma just lava started coming up through the surface and then built up into a cone. And now there's a volcano there. We're horrified. Yeah, honestly, this is a podcast, like, how can you... but we're we're shocked. I wouldn't. I, just... I wouldn't worry. Like it's not going to probably happen where your house is. And Mexico but, I mean, is a Zillow listing. If it did, the Zillow listing. <laughs> oh, Three bedrooms. Oh, two one bedrooms. Caldera. One bedroom. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Um, why? This is a, a very broad question. Why are there volcanoes? Why are there why volcanoes? Um, when you have something beneath the surface that's hot, hotter than the surroundings, um, it's uh, going to be more buoyant than the surrounding stuff. So it's like hot air in a room rises, right? Or if you're boiling a pot of water on a stove, you get these little convective currents and you see water from below coming up to the top. I mean, it's this, or you know, even better example is a lava lamp. You have wax at the bottom of a lava lamp that you heat up with a light bulb Mm -hmm. and the wax rises because it's hotter and so more buoyant. And when you have enough uh, momentum, then you can get the volcano to to occur. And so you just get this happening over and over again. And it's like, have you ever seen like at the beach, there's those like little tiny crabs that go into the sand and they kick out a bunch of sand and they Mm -hmm. have little piles of little sand balls around. It's like the same way that (laughs) volcanoes are like anthills. You get little mm. cones around anthills. It's because you're just throwing up material over and over and over, and it just builds up into a cone shape. Wow. 
<laughs> and how have they like uh do they create new land when like when lava cools? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that's that's how that's another cool thing about volcanism like that's that's how land formed. Mm. So the only reason we have continents is because of volcanism. Say that again, please. That just blew my mind. <laughs> yes. Here's your soundbite. Yes. The only reason we have continents is because of volcanism. Wow. Huh. So, it, and that's, and again, one of the reasons that we think, you know, volcanoes were so crucial in allowing not only oxygen-breathing life in general, but the the emergence of land-dwelling life. Because all of these, you know, we just had a, an ocean, basically a global ocean, until these volcanoes emerged from below the water. And all of a sudden, we're able to now interact with the atmosphere directly and start to build up more and more land. And it's just changed the whole picture. Wow. That's such a huge purpose. Okay. Are there any other purposes that volcanoes serve? Oh, so many. Um, uh, On a more day-to-day level for people who are living on volcanoes, um, not only is there massive cultural significance to a lot of people, um, but there's a reason for that. Uh, A largely one of the main reasons is because the volcano, I learned when I did, um, I did some work in the DR Congo, um, one of the Congolese people who, who lives near this big volcano was telling us that they, they have a saying that the volcano has two faces. It can give <laughs> life and it can take life away. Mm-hmm. And it's a very powerful thing when you're living next to a volcano because it provides all of these elements. Again, the things we need for life. Volcanic glass, the material that gets erupted, breaks down really quickly with rain and things like that. And so it produces really rich soil. So that's why places like Hawaii and Costa Rica, these volcanically active places have, you know, plus they're in, those places are in tropical environments. You couple that together and you get this really, really rich soil for uh, growing coffee beans and bananas and all kinds of stuff. Anything you want to grow on it, basically. Um, San Marzano tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. Tomatoes. Yeah. I mean, and depending on then where you are and what the composition of that volcanic stuff is, is it going to change like what your tomato tastes like? So it's mm. going to have more or less calcium or phosphorus or people will grow um, grapes for wine on different volcanic soils and they will have different you know, wine profiles because of what that the volcano was doing. Um, and then, of course, there's that flip side of, you know, it, it takes away life. It's destructive. It, uh, lava flow is like a bulldozer coming through your town and it you you can outrun it. But you can't stop it. You can't move your house out of the way. If it's coming towards your house, come towards your house. Nothing you mm-hmm. can do. So it's this powerful force that, you know, have no control over it. Not to mention the noxious gases that volcanoes output. Um, sometimes those gases can pond in low-lying areas. So carbon dioxide is heavier than air. And some volcanoes kind of just leak carbon dioxide out the sides. And if you have some areas, low-lying areas around you know, a a child or a livestock like goats or something that's shorter, you know, maybe about waist height might wander into that, that area and asphyxiate because there's no oxygen there. It's just carbon dioxide. So there's these little dangers that unless you live with the volcano, you wouldn't even think that that would be a thing you'd have to worry about. Wow. Wow. Can you imagine thinking about volcanoes as often as people that live near them do? I certainly was not aware of the gases pooling in those mm-hmm. um, low-lying areas. And that's uh, that's a new fact. Yep. That's a new thing to keep me from sleeping. I'm still going back to all the land mass on Earth comes from volcanoes. I mean, that. I guess I never thought about where land came from. Because it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly hadn't either. <laughs> like it's, I feel so um, silly being like, well, I guess I'd never thought it. It just, it felt like an, a given land. Land yeah. is here. Um, but where that land came from, I mean, that is, I think, the scientific brain. And I think that is the curiosity that I'm so interested in, you know, talking to people about. Because I, it just, these things don't occur to me. Same. Same. Okay, let's pause the conversation and take a quick break. Coming up, we'll get into Kayla's volcanic research on other planets. We'll be right back. Mm 
Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back. What is the day-to-day life like of someone who studies volcanoes? Yeah, um, it can be really different depending on the day. Um, And of course, you know, during the pandemic, it's been very different. Right now, I am working for a company called Jacobs at NASA's Johnson Space Center. And so a lot of my work um, throughout my career has been based on volcanoes on Earth. And now I'm getting to study volcanoes on other planets. So I'm getting to work with meteorite samples and do computations in systems that I never would have been thinking about before. Um, One thing I'm studying right now is the formation of the planet Mercury. Oh. So it's one of these really big questions because people think volcanoes, are that's this really specific thing. But as we've talked about, it's part of a bigger process that affects things on a global scale. And so we can use what we know from volcanoes and from magma chemistry and things like that to understand like how planets form and how they evolve and you know the more we learn about planets like mercury the more we understand our place in the solar system and you know what that says about earth what have you learned uh, about the formation of mercury so far so i'm glad you asked because i think it's really interesting (laughs) Um, so mercury is really weird it is chemically really bizarre planet Hmm. um you know on earth so this brings us back to oxygen again on Earth, we have a ton of oxygen in our atmosphere, right? So if I take a piece of steel and iron, put it outside, it turns to rust. So the oxygen in the atmosphere is like just looking for something to bond with. It's really, really reactive. So it sees these like free iron atoms and bonds with them to make iron oxide. Um, and the most non-oxygen rich, so the, we call that reducing, the most reducing place on Earth that we usually think about would be something like a, like a metal smelter. Mm-hmm. where you're you're trying to reverse that process. You're taking like a rock and you're trying to extract the metal out of it. So you have to remove all the oxygen from the systems to get that pure metal. Hmm. And that kind of process happens inside of planets as well. Um, you probably know that we have a metal core. It's mostly made of metal iron. And all the terrestrial planets, the first four planets, all have a metal core that's mostly iron. But Mercury's is like way bigger than it should be. It's like ridiculous. Hmm. Like Earth, the Moon, Mars, Venus, all of those planets, including plus the Moon, have um, a core that's, you know, a certain percentage of its total mass. It's, um, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but that, that, that size ratio is the same throughout, right? So it's like this, you get this much core and then the rest of it is, is mantle, is oxidized stuff. But on Mercury, it's like most of the planet is core, Hmm. And the whole planet is super reducing. Like the surface is like a smelter. Like there, there is iron metal at the surface. There is like exotic, there's like silicon metal that exists that like, you know, that's, you don't encounter that anywhere on earth unless you're in like a smelter or something. So it's like, well, why, why is it like this? Why is it so different from all the other planets? And so we have this theory that we're trying to test now going back through all these data that exists and trying to see if we can build a mathematical model to, hmm. to say how this happened. And one of the thoughts is that, well, maybe it didn't start out with this massive core. Maybe the whole planet was bigger originally. Maybe it had uh, more that mantle no. material surrounding the core. And it's like it started and grew up like a normal planet and then something happened. And if that were to happen, you can do the, the thought experiment, right? You can have this normal planet sitting there. Something comes crashing into it. We know that happens. That's how our moon was formed. What? Yeah, we can talk about that too. Our moon was formed by a giant impact really early in our our history. And so we're like, well, maybe this happened on Mercury, like a planet-sized thing. Because early in the solar system, like things were were like bonkers. Like stuff was flying around (laughs) everywhere. Now it's all like clean and there's one planet per orbit, right? And we're like, that's because all the collisions happened already. And we just kind of like, 
it was just like a giant car wreck and then things kept spinning. And then all of a sudden, like they the little pieces kind of gobbled each other up. And then we were left with this like nice orderly, like eight planets going around in circles. Yeah. And then like Pluto doing its own thing. So we're like, okay, so we know it was like a chaotic environment early in the, the solar system's history. So maybe this huge collision happened and it may be that uh, mantle material, which is like the oxygen bearing stuff surrounding mm-hmm. your, your metal stuff. Maybe some of that got stripped away. Like it was enough to, to blow that away and preserve this, this core. And so now you have this really thin veneer of a mantle surrounding this massive, like ridiculously large metal core. And then, and it's super hot now, right? It's just been pulverized. And so now the whole thing has to like chemically re-equilibrate with itself. Huh. It has to like come to an equilibrium hmm. because you've just changed its bulk composition. It's like if you have a, like a Twix bar, right? And you just remove all the cookie. Like now you have a different ratio of other stuff left over because you have no cookie. They just have caramel and, you know, a tiny bit of cookie maybe and just, and chocolate now, that's it. So the whole thing re-equilibrates and like what we're trying to do right now, we're trying to do the math to see if that happens, would it re-equilibrate to become this like smelter planet? Would we expect to find these exotic metals on the surface? And if so, then that means this theory of this giant impact on Mercury um, is, is a good theory. It's plausible that this may have happened. And this is a, it's a, it fits, you know, it's not a, it's not a sure thing, but it's kind of how we do science a lot of times. Like we don't know the answer, but we know that this fits all the pieces. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. That's very incredible, but also when you were talking about the universe when it was like young, I'm just imagining the universe being like, I was a hot mess when I was young. I just <laughs> exactly. had to get my stuff together. Exactly. It's matured now. It's got like a mortgage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've heard you talk about microorganisms that might feed on the carbon in a volcano. Can you talk to us about a volcano as an ecosystem? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's one thing that we're really just starting to understand. Um, until very recently, you know, volcanoes were definitely thought of as a place completely devoid of life. But it turns out, you know, life finds a way. Um, <laughs> and it's volcanoes are in many cases providing the environments necessary for life, not only just the erupting material, but uh, for example, some of the earliest examples of this that we discovered was on the ocean floor. It's like no light, super high pressure, it's really cold, really not a great environment for life to thrive. There's not a lot going on down there. But it turned out there are these things called black smokers, which are like mini volcanoes, basically, that are just pumping out hot volcanic material, volcanic gases and sulfur and carbon into the ocean at the ocean floor. And it was providing heat mm-hmm. and it was providing these nutrients. And it turns out like, life likes a gradient. So life likes to be in the pl- places where things are changing. If there's one thing that's just super stable, you know, here or, uh, you know, on the left or on the right, it's, they, they want to be in between. They want to be in, in, in where things are moving. So if you have like flowing water, across the surface. They'd rather be there. So they're gaining new nutrients all the time. And so we created this gradient of, you know, say sulfur and carbon and also heat. So you have like really hot areas and really cold areas and some places in between and different life forms will live in each one of these little spots along this gradient and thrive and use that heat and the the materials, turn that into energy to grow their bodies. And then we've seen, that was one of the the first things we kind of learned about when we realized that volcanoes were were these ecosystems um and so it's like the the life finds a way thing is so apt because like they find any little niche where there's wherever there's energy movement of energy like life is there because they're like oh i can metabolize this and it just takes off what types of questions are you looking to answer with your research um i'm that's such a good question like there's so many levels right there's down to like the really specific questions but um, you know, mostly the, the bigger questions are the thing that are driving us. Um, one of those things is where I, because I feel that we are at a real turning point in the field in terms of mm-hmm. our understanding of volcanism is, um, understanding how to predict volcanic eruptions, um, mm-hmm. and understanding how to read the signals from volcanoes while they're erupting in service of, um, you know, helping people either 
when they need to evacuate or helping to inform the public about, you know, volcanic hazards that are happening around them. Um, you know, people like think that we know everything about that kind of stuff. Like we know everything about volcanoes. Like, you know, you make like baking soda and vinegar or whatever, and it's like a volcano. <laughs> and like, you know, I don't know. I, I probably would have thought this too, that, oh, we know, we know how a volcano works. Like, why are we still studying them? But it turns out like we don't, we're, geology itself is a very early, recent, young science. Like, this was born in, you know, 1700s in, in England and Scotland. And like physics has been around since like the ancient Greeks and Egyptians and all this stuff. Like geology and in the, in the, in the run of things is pretty young. And volcanology is much younger. We didn't even know plate tectonics existed until like the 60s, 1960s. Before that, they had these weird models of the earth that today are comical. But you kind of realize that, okay, plate tectonics is pretty wackadoodle if you'd like never heard of it. Um, but now we just take that for granted. And, you know, it's like that with volcanoes too. I think they're, when a volcano is erupting, it's giving us all these signals. You know, our job mm -hmm. as scientists are to learn how to read the stories in the rocks and the stories in the gases that are erupting and in the ash clouds. We, it's like they're written in a different language and we have to find the Rosetta Stone that allows us to unlock what the message means. What is you know, if, if it erupts, if the gas composition, let's say of an erupting volcano changes from this to this, that's telling us about something. There's, there's a reason it changed. It's something deep in the earth that's, that's changed. Maybe it's magma moving to more shallow level or new magma coming in. Um, and we're just really at the early stages of trying to read these signals. And I think what we need is a sort of globalized um, understanding of a more generalized understanding because we might say, okay, this volcano, like this guy studied it for 60 years and he, he has a pretty good idea of what happens, what, what his typical behavior is. But like every volcano is its own beast and understanding, you know, from one volcano to the next, like there, there aren't good connections there that, mm -hmm. that we've established. And so that's uh, one of the big questions that I'm really interested in helping to answer is how do we build this sort of general model for for reading these stories, these volcanic stories that are being told to us, we just need to learn like how to listen and how to interpret them. I mean, so, you know, we had a, we had a big picture question for you to end the interview, but I feel like we've touched on parts of it, which is like, how do volcanoes connect us to the history of the planet? Well, I've learned in this interview that land exists on earth because of volcanoes and your work. Now you're talking about how volcanoes on our planet, may give us insight into other planets and the reverse volcanoes on other planets may give us insight into earth. Like what are the big picture connections you're making as you're doing your research? Yeah, I think um, we know somewhat the story of the earth in broad terms of it went from this to this, to this, to this. We're pretty confident about some pieces of that history, but it's like, what does that mean in context of what else could it have been? What could have been the story of the earth? how rare is it that we arrived the, at the place that we did today? Um, mm. And so understanding, you know, how Mercury evolved to be this like smelter planet with weirdo metals on the surface. And there's like graphite on the surface and, and you know, this, yeah, silicon metal and titanium and all this weird stuff. Like why, like, could that have been the fate of the earth? Is it just mm. as likely that mm. you, that a planet becomes that or it becomes this thing where life is absolutely everywhere. Um, so again, I think it's just like, it's about contextualizing, you know, our existence as humans in a way. Um, and not to like sound too grandiose and like too dramatic, but um, it really is connected to, to that understanding of who we are and, you know, who we might meet out there as well. Thank you so much. This has been an absolutely incredible interview. <laughs> yes, this was thrilling. Thanks so much for having me. Just one last break. When we come back, it's story time. And we're back. It's story time. Yes. And we have a very special guest this week. My co-star in the animated series Invincible, Zossie Bates. Hi. 
Thank you so much for joining us today for Storytime. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, the both of you. I'm really <laughs> excited to be here. I was so excited, Gillian, when you texted me for this opportunity. So thank you so much. <laughs> and so we, you know, share little facts at the top of every episode about things we're interested in or thinking mm-hmm. about in the world of STEM. Do you have anything that has been on your mind lately in the STEM world? Um, I mean, I think the big one, I suppose, is climate. I've actually been having a lot of (laughs) dreams about climate change recently, which I wouldn't say have been positive. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, you know, I think it has been really interesting to observe technology within this space and how innovative we can be as humans. And that's actually sort of this very hopeful silver lining around it all. And I've been really astounded at the kinds of things we have come up with and the kinds of things that I think people we would consider to be laymen are coming up with. And, you know, in terms of like how how we're sort of upcycling plastic and, you know, um, when we people coming up with contraptions on how to collect it from the oceans or, um, you know, I don't know, we're just finding all these different ways of of creating renewable energy sources and um, sort of closing the consumer loop and sort of approaching zero waste and all of these things in a really cool and new way. Um, And I do believe that technology is a really great way to approach this. I also just think general reduction of consumption is how we need to do it. And it'll have to be a combination, but I'm, I'm so proud of all these innovators, a lot of them young people who are doing this. And so more important now than ever to be jumping into this world of science, technology, math, and all those kinds of things. Most deaf. <laughs> I also really like what you said about um, them being lay people, because that's part mm-hmm. of what's cool about this podcast is I'm learning a lot of different ways that I can affect things that I, I power that I didn't know I had. So I love you talking about that, too. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. I feel that way, too, with with climate as well. Like, me and my partner started um, this, gosh, in quotations, strongly, a show <laughs> called The Sea Talks Climate, where I just interview experts in the field on my Instagram um, sporadically, <laughs> just pop out with an episode. Um, but, you know, initially, I felt very insecure about doing it because I was like, who am I to be talking about this? And, you know, uh, what do I know? But it's been really cool. I've really genuinely been learning things. And I was just passionate about it. And I wanted more people to be passionate about it. And so I just jumped in. But it it really has kind of fired me up to look into different kinds of uh, ways that I can engage in climate change. And it's you know, different organizations that are doing things and what I'm, you know, putting my own money or resources into to help support and just just things I just didn't know before. Like I learned a lot about how oceans are such a huge part of mm-hmm. what is keeping our climate regular and like mm-hmm. the destruction of the oceans isn't just we're losing fishes. It's literally we're losing one of our lungs of the planet. You know, we put so much emphasis on the rainforests mm-hmm. and really 50% of our oxygen is coming from the oceans. And it's just, wow. I think it's just so interesting to, um, you know, I just, and I didn't know that and, and I'm interested. And so it was cool to hear that. All right, should we get into it? Let's. This is the story of Tetsuya Ted Fujita, a meteorologist that earned the nickname Mr. Tornado. Who listening has seen the movie Twister? I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it. We all yeah. need to watch it. <laughs> yes. I mean, and if you're into 90s disaster flicks, it is a classic. In the movie, a group of field researchers are chasing and studying tornadoes. And Dr. Fujita's work is central to how they measure a tornado's intensity. No, that, that was a good-sized twister. What was that, an F3? Solid F2. See, now you've lost me again. It's the Fujita scale. It measures the intensity of a tornado by how much it eats. Eats? Destroys. Little uh, encounter we had back there is a strong F2, F3 maybe. Bet we see some F4s today. That'd be sweet. Four is good. Four will relocate your house fairly efficiently. (laughs) Is there an F5? What would that be like? 
The finger of God. Of course, they eventually end up seeing an F5 tornado, blah, 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 blah. Like we said, it's a disaster movie. <laughs> but the point is, Dr. Fujita's research about tornadoes and other severe weather phenomena was monumental. I mean, he has a scale named after him. So let's back up to chart his path to making history. We'll begin in the 1920s. Fujita is growing up in southern Japan. He's an extremely inquisitive kid and captivated by the natural world. Fujita's curiosity knows no bounds. At one point during a typhoon, his father caught him on the roof of their house trying to measure the wind. If that's not a young scientist in the making, I don't know what is. When Fujita is old enough, he goes to college to study engineering. I can kind of see why that might appeal to him. Engineering is a growing field, and if it's at all similar to how we teach it today, it can inspire outside-the-box thinking. Then, in 1945, his life changes forever. Actually, it almost ended. It's World War II, and the U.S. has just dropped an atomic bomb in Hiroshima, Japan. Days later, the U.S. then targets an area that's just a few miles from where Fujita lives. The weather played an important role that day because the pilot couldn't see past the clouds to get a look at the targeted area. So change of plans. They don't drop the bomb there. The plane flies to another area instead, the city of Nagasaki. When that second atomic bomb drops, tens of thousands of people perish. Fujita is asked to help survey the damage and piece together what happened. Remember, this is the 1940s. The world's never seen damage on this scale. America's nuclear program is still very new. In surveying the wreckage, Fujita is able to calculate where the plane was and how high up the bomb was when it exploded. That must have been an awful experience. But it's also the start of the kind of field detective work he would use later in how he researches destructive storms. After the war, Fujita leans back into his fascination with the weather. He conducts tests during thunderstorms, catching details other scientists miss. He happens to come across the work of a meteorologist named Dr. Horace Byers at the University of Chicago. He's doing similar research. As it turns out, in the U.S., there's fresh investment in studying weather patterns. Their ultimate goal is to better understand storms so that flying on commercial airplanes can become safer. Back in Japan, the economy is struggling after the war, so Fujita decides to send a paper of his thunderstorm research to Dr. Byers. Eventually, Fujita receives an offer to join the research team in America. You know, I really wonder what life feels like for him at this moment. At this point, it's the 1950s. There was so much destruction during the war that he moves to the United States, and he's looking to survey destruction of a different kind. I don't know. We'll never know how that transition felt, but at this point, Fujita opens a new chapter in the States. It's around this time that he got his doctorate, so we'll start referring to him as Dr. Fujita. Dr. Fujita soon becomes drawn towards tornadoes, a force that scientists have been trying to better understand for centuries. No one really knew why they happened or how they worked. When a massive tornado struck North Dakota in 1957, Dr. Fujita was able to collect and analyze hundreds of photos from locals that captured the storm from different angles. It takes a couple years, but he's able to use the images to recreate the life cycle of a tornado. Images become such a profoundly helpful asset that Dr. Fujita becomes the one holding the camera. In the 1960s, he begins passengering small planes, having someone pilot as he takes images above the destruction sites. Surveying the destruction paths of tornadoes gives him a whole new perspective. Dr. Fujita notices patterns on the ground, and he sees them as clues to what's happening inside the tornado. He proposes that within some tornadoes, there could be several smaller funnels. His ideas are immediately met with resistance, but he argues his case. Photographs are still an effective way to prove his theories. He becomes something of a storm damage detective. And in 1971, he begins to formally categorize tornadoes by their intensity. It's a six-point scale. From F0, light damage, to F5, incredible damage. He earns the nickname Mr. Tornado and continues researching severe weather. 
He provided meteorology with new terms like wall cloud, which is like a lower portion of a particular cloud that sometimes forms tornadoes. His work was so appreciated that when researchers expanded and refined how we categorize tornado intensity, they still referenced his name. Today, we use the enhanced Fujita scale. And yes, his work also helped inspire the plot of the movie Twister. Shockingly, our recommendation this week is not the seminal classic we've referenced (laughs) way too much. (laughs) Instead, we recommend checking out a new documentary about Fujita's life called Mr. Tornado, an American Experience. I'll watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That was such a good story time. Yes, I, I love this episode. The The interview, just, I could not stop talking about volcanoes after we did this interview. <laughs> um, I got to tell you, um, all that talk about, like, tornadoes and volcanoes, it was reminding me of summers in Michigan. Because, oh. you know, Michigan gets tornadoes. I was in lower Michigan, and I was uh, absolutely unprepared for it. <laughs> Like just, you know, you would see tornado watch, tornado warning on the news. And luckily we never had anything, you know, really come through when I was there. But I mean, it felt like the weather just changed so drastically. It truly felt like you were in like Twister, you know? Wow. What would you do if there was like a tornado warning? You know, we would go down to our basement because we had Mm -hmm. a basement. So that's what I think that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go down to the basement. I remember doing drills in elementary school where mm. we would all sit in the hallway away from windows and sit facing the wall. Did you ever do that? No. What? Facing the wall? Yeah. I remember you would sit and you would cover your neck with your hands and you would sit yeah, with your face, with your like head up against the wall. That's really interesting. No, I don't remember that. See, unprepared. Look at me. <laughs> Probably what she's supposed to be doing. Pennsylvania, y'all had pretty extreme snowstorms, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There was a lot of snow in Pittsburgh where I grew up. And then I had family who lived closer to Lake Erie and they have even more intense snowstorms up there. And I definitely remember getting snowed in as a kid, visiting my grandparents and having to miss rehearsal for a play and I was very upset. No, which play? Ah, <laughs> uh, what was it? I think it was Annie maybe, but I was, you know, I didn't actually have like a real role because I couldn't sing well enough to actually <laughs> want to be one of the orphans. Maybe I've told you about this when I would sit in the orchestra pit next to the conductor. Yes. yes. So that, I think it was around that time. <laughs> You were like, what will my conductor friend do? I know. Meanwhile, they were like, stop making noise. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I think it's time to read some reviews. (laughs) On that scientific note, let's get to some reviews. (laughs) Okay, here's one from Nicole RXS. Uh, As the leader of a local Girl Scout troop, I'm always on the lookout for ways to show my scouts how women can make an impact on our world. This podcast is practically giving me a blueprint for endless lessons. As a former Girl Scout, what an honor. I mean, I guess once a Girl Scout, always a Girl Scout. Well, until my troop dissolved because uh, no one wanted to be our troop leader and we took all the cookie money and went out to dinner. Uh, So am I still uh, always a Girl Scout? You are. I will teach you after this. I'll teach you the song for our troop, 240. Great. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. And here's one from Sarah the Walrus. I'm a senior in high school, going to be a bio major, and I love to nerd out on science podcasts. I really want to be an exobiologist and make life possible on different planets. So I was super interested to hear from Tracy Drain and Jessica Meir and their journey towards space. Well, guess what, Sarah? We have more interviews coming your way that I think you're going to love. Yes, and congrats on deciding to be a bio major. I'm so excited for you. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We might even read your comments on the show. And follow us on Instagram. We are at Periodic Talks. This podcast is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher.
I know that we have to leave. I know that this is not going to actually make it to the uh, to the show, but I'm going to teach you the song right quick because my mom wrote it. Ready? Oh, yes. It's We Are Troop 240, learning all the things that we should know from science to hiking to going on trips because we are Troop 240. Yay. My mom was really good at writing songs. That is so sweet. <laughs> Stitcher. 